Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Technical Director and First Team Coach of FC London, Yanni Salasidis. Yanni, big warm welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Connor. This is a long time coming. I'm really excited about today. Yeah, and as you may see, uh, if you're watching us on YouTube, we've taken the lowdown again on the road. So today we are in Prevail Media Studio here in Lisa Court in London. So a big shout out today to the media guys, Matt, Brendan, Sean and George at the back and the production crew for getting us on board here today. See Sean celebrating in the back. So as is opening tradition on these podcasts, Yanni, as... I know you have been listening to as a long-time listener. Could you please take us through your earliest football memory? Oh, man. The the most profound one that's like etched in my memory is, you know, really back in my hometown of Winnipeg when my old man would take me and my two older brothers to the park on a Sunday, on a warm day. And I just remember him and it's, it's just stuck in my brain. He would pick up the ball and just punt it in the air, right? And we're, you know, five, six years old. And I'd just be awestruck, like watching this object flying into the air. You know, it's the highest that, you know, you'd ever see something go other than a plane. And you start realizing at a young age, like, you know, you can do some pretty crazy things with this ball. Mm. You know, it's round. It's this magical thing. And then when it hit the ground, you'd be on the hunt with your two brothers and I'd barely get a sniff of the ball. You know, my older brother was some player and, uh, my middle brother was pretty good too. And every once in a while, I'd get a whiff of it and I'd be able to shield it and, and have it and try something. And then it'd be nicked away in an instant. But I'd be chasing that ball down like a puppy dog. And yeah, those were, those were special days. They often ended with, you know, some ice cream on the way home too. So yeah, those would probably be my, my earliest football memory. Another one that comes up too, I'll never forget the 98 World Cup with Zizou. And I remember, oh man, I just remember watching him glide. And I thought uh, like as a young kid, like this guy's so cool. He's so cool the way he played, like his facial expression never changed. The way he glided and he was a big guy too. I just, I remember always trying to like walk and run and and emulate him. Mm. It's interesting because we speak about it quite often now. Obviously for those that aren't aware, I work closely with Yanni here at FC London too, but emulation. Emulation is huge in terms of players nowadays. Like for you growing up, who other, I mean, what other influences did you have? Where are your two older brothers and Zidane? That's quite an interesting mix, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I also remember coming down on a, a Saturday morning down the stairs and my old man would have the, the telly on and he'd be watching the old uh, Italian channel. It was a free channel on cable, full on Italian uh, commentaries. So you never knew what was being said, but there was these purple jerseys on and there'd be these teams playing. And I remember asking, who's that? And my dad's like, that's Batistuta, one of the best players. You got to watch this guy. You got to watch this guy. And I remember the way he'd be dribbling. Like, it's like he would take so many touches of the ball as he was sprinting. And I remember going in the backyard and always trying to emulate that. And those are tools that you keep with you because they work with players too. Like Mm -hmm. watching film and and having players see the ones that they want to aspire to and then helping them kind of drive that path too. It's an interesting one too, like in terms of being at one with the creative, looking at a Batistuta, looking at a Zidane. And obviously, I know you had your own playing career. I mean, you played as high as the PDL. So it's a case of like, once you understand you're not going to reach the heights of the heights, the loftiest heights in terms of playing career, once you go into coaching, do you think that influences the way that you see the game, 
influence even the type of football that you want to see played? Oh, it's it's an interesting one because it's so tied into the to the context of a Canadian player and a Canadian coach. Yeah. Right? Like I grew up in Winnipeg where six months of the year you're in the winter. Like, and I'm not talking a little bit of snow, I'm talking minus 20, minus 30, minus 40. Some days you don't even you don't even want to leave the house. Mm. The the punch you get from the wind on those days is it's grueling. Right. And I remember early on in my in my coaching career, there's days where we'd be going at 6 a.m. Uh, at the high performance center at the indoor facilities. And you, you think some days like, what am I doing? Holy crow. But you, you're getting up for those players. You're getting up because you got to give them something. Right. You're responsible to a group of kids. And yeah, you just got to find a way. Yeah. I mean, that wasn't on the <laughs> that wasn't on a pamphlet moving over here. Those cold, wet, snowy mornings going into BMO. You remember at the start of the year, four or five months inside. But I mean, ultimately, what it was going to do for us, essentially as a coaching staff, it formed the backbone of quite, I would have to say, successful season that we've just completed now with FC London, with the League One men's team. I mean, you look at the success. I mean, there's so many to go at. There's so many to dis- things to discuss between the transformation in the playing style, between, I would say, the culture and community built at the club, between the fans, the parents, the players and coaches, between the highest average attendance in the whole of League One Ontario, both on the men's and the women's side. And then if you look at the success stories, I mean, we're just speaking off air with Matt and Brendan about like the likes of Darlington making his debut last week. You have Kelsey Egu on trail with TFC, Santi and KB over in Dubai, Charlotte Cromack on trail with Benfica, heck even Jimmy Wilcox. He's working for Arsenal now as an analyst. I mean, where do you even begin to describe what's just occurred last season? Honestly, it's, it's so it's so crazy even to hear you say that. And, and you're right, it all started in those winter months in that dry facility at PMO in those six-a-side sessions where it was all or nothing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely everything on the line. I remember we had six or seven coaches around the pitch howling uh, at the principals, <laughs> the video meetings we'd be doing before. And, oh, you know, the size of the group that started with like a hundred and something trialists all the way down to those 23 abnormal men, which turned out to be a remarkable season. Again, context... For whatever reason, League One Ontario decided to do promotion relegation, which uh, if you know anything about the Canadian structure, League One Ontario would be the second highest level in Canada, the third highest level if you include the MLS uh, structure with uh, TFC Montreal and Vancouver. So it's, it's an emerging league and it's where, you know, the future and the young talent in Canada is trying to make that next jump into the CPL. So League One Ontario has done a promotion relegation system, meaning there's consequence on the line. And the way they did it was unique. So not only was it the first time in, in Canadian history where that structure was implemented, it was done over two seasons. So the points totals of the previous season and this season were combined to see who would stay up and who would go down. So last season, obviously I wasn't the head coach. The, the club finished dead last, which meant that the only way to stay up would be to finish in the top two. So we had a decision to make. And you were part of those discussions with the staff in terms of, what was the vision going to be? You know, what type of style did we want to play? What feeling did we want to create at TriCar at the home pitch? Mm. And, and what was the end in mind going to look and feel like? And, you know, we decided really quickly that we weren't going to sacrifice the player's time. We weren't going to make it about us. We weren't going to make it about our objectives and what we needed to do. It was about their path and helping them choose, right? And that's why every single session mattered. And I remember those sessions. You'd be horsed in the throat after you know, we'd almost be as tired as the players. 
Yeah. I remember it on Saturday night, those two minute games, two minutes or two goals, and you shouting relentlessly, no at a time, no at a time. And even I was thinking at the start, I don't know if it's a bit overblown to be doing this in December, January, February, <laughs> but context is key. At the end of the season, there was no team that had as many late levelers or last minute winners as us. But even going back to the heady months of BMO, like in the winter time, I mean, you coming here, obviously your second season as the club, first year as first team coach here, I mean, working with an entirely new different staff, like entirely new different team, seven billets brought from all over Canada, heck, one even Italian. I mean, where do you even go? Where do you even begin with respect to building a team out of that? And and that's the part too. It's it's so daunting, Connor, too, where you're like, you know what, it's the team's finished dead last. And, and then you get excited, like, oh, maybe, maybe we can finish high enough to get through. And then you you, you do the horror film. Or oh, what if we don't? Hmm. Or what if we don't? And and that's where consequence is key. Like, you're right, we'd be shouting, you don't get time back. You do not get time back. So it was about being very intentional with every single conversation we had. It was about being very intentional with making sure we build trust with the staff and with each other. There was a lot of newness. And with newness, there's randomness. And with randomness, you're looking for something to attach to. So it was critical that we had an anchor in our team. And, and you played a big role in that too. And, and some of the inspirations of... Try to. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and the inspirations of, you know, what is our anchor going to be? And for us, it ended up being know your roots. Mm. Know your roots. FC London is not um, what the typical FC stands for, which is football club. FC London stands for Forest City. And the reason why is this city was at one point completely drenched in forest, right? And, and if you know anything about forest, all forests have deep roots. And if you know anything about roots, all roots have healing power. Mm. So you say this one a lot too. You, you can only connect the dots going forward. So where do we begin? We, we, once we selected the squad, every single player had to dig into their roots. They had to know about their dad's dad's dad, their mom's mom's mom. How did they get to where they are today? Because there was some striving in that. And the data that came back, I think, was 75% of the players were two generations removed from family having to flee for survival. Fascinating. Can you imagine that? Like your family has to leave where they're living for survival reasons. If you don't get out of there, you're done. Right. And we had players from India, Italy, Uruguay, Zimbabwe who had a common thread there. So we knew it wasn't going to be easy. But when you have that anchor, the, the the pressure you get from football like really counts for nothing. No, but it was quite evident too. And to be fair, I was taken back, obviously, seeing TriCare since arriving here last October, right? Training there for months on end, games, friendly games, OPDL games, even before our very first home game. I'll never forget, like even just banning the school visits, free tickets, the different cultural days that we were all doing at the club, like that home game against Simcoe for me, that was a very, very special day. I'd never seen like all four corners of the ground packed like that before. And Simcoe, who ended up winning the league, for Christ's sakes, like we tied them in a one-all draw, but the equaliser at the end, just the elation and the outpouring of emotion from fans at the end of the game was like nothing I had ever witnessed for essentially what is a semi-pro level, really. Yeah, I remember the game I got... Uh... I got booked at the end because I was trying to shout some detail in the final few minutes when we tied it up to one of the center backs, Lewis, and my foot crossed the line and I it took a yellow to last bucking either. Yeah, and, uh, but I, the reason why I stepped over the line is because he couldn't hear me. The player couldn't hear me. 
you know, I don't know what we had there. It was six or 700 people, but I've been in Champions League matches. I, I, you know, I've been to World Cup matches. There was a hum around Tricar that you, you couldn't hear each other, mm. right? And there was voices, but there was also a feeling. And, and that was also part of the objective is we wanted to spark a feeling in London. You know, the, the city had a rich history of, of success and somewhere along the ways that was lost. So it was a question of tapping into that. And I think where that stemmed from was the, the fans really felt the players were striving. Regardless of the outcomes in the, in the games, everybody at Tricar always knew they were coming to a match where every player was going to put everything on the line. Every tackle, every time we were going to build out, every high press, even the throw-ins had intentionality. Yeah. Right? And I think people were excited by that. People attached to that. And that made it fun for us as a staff too. 100% because no two days were the same between training sessions for road trips to the games, the home games at TRICARE. Absolutely fascinating even to just reflect and look back at some of those memories. To touch upon just all but one would be a disservice, but indeed I'll do that. I mean, the Electric City game. I mean, oh, for man. me, we're very fortunate, by the way, to bring these guys on board, Prevail, who are shooting behind the scenes all season. You know, hopefully we're in the midst now of putting something together for end-of-season documentary between the player edits and whatnot, they've done a terrific job. But the edit they got that day of KB's was like something, you know what, Premier League quality footage would be doing it a disservice. Absolutely incredible. But for context, 2-0 down, local derby, bring back the game to tie 2-2. But for me as a staff member that day, it was just like, you felt you were part of something bigger. 2-0 down half time, it was like there was not a single staff member, not a single substitute, not a single player, not a single person in a crowd that was on hell on earth losing that game that day. It was like just one unsurmountable force in the yeah. second half. Yeah, look at tricar games when you're when you're entering into the change room at halftime, there's no way around it. You got one or two hundred young kids, boys and girls looking you in the eyes. Mm. And they're staring at you with hope. And they're staring at you with expectation. And I'll never forget walking into the change room at that halftime and seeing eyes, seeing eyes of the boys and girls that you're handshaking during the week, the boys and girls that you're asking things of during the week, demanding things of during the week. And I just saw belief in their eyes. Mm. I mean, they're looking at you saying, you're, you're the guy and you're the team that, that's going to do this, right? And you take a deep breath and you go in. And I also remember I had a pause in the change room after we, we made a little adjustment. There was a little tweak to the tactics. Sure, that's fine put a couple players closer together. We moved one guy higher between the lines. That stuff's not important. But I remember pausing and seeing yourself huddling in with two or three players, lifting guys. I remember seeing Coach Garrett mm. bringing the forwards in. You know, I remember seeing our goalkeeper, Coach Andre, with Darlington and, and the second keeper, Chris. You know, just everybody was doing their bits. We had Mikey with the data, checking yeah. the play-up data. Where are we threatening from? And like, it just, I just felt cohesion. I was like, we're not losing this game. Like we're not losing this game, not with these type of people around, not with everything we've been through, not with the kids out there expecting it. And it was two remarkable goals. And the boys will put the clip up somewhere. It's 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 got to be up there uh, for yeah, best I'll, picture. I'll have to link it. In I don't place. know how they caught that shot, but you had the smoke in the background, the fans hugging the fence, the looks on the faces. Um, it was a very very special moment. Yeah, it's it's something interesting, and it's like beyond football, though. It's like you see the best music, you see the best film, the best documentaries, the best architecture. It's when somebody pours, pours their life and soul into it. Now, 
for context for people listening, we didn't go on to win any league, clinch any playoffs. We didn't stay up even, but finished mid-table. But still, at the same time, you felt like a collective that was much more than the sum of its parts. With that being said, obviously there's high points, there's low points in the season. And one of the nadirs of last season I wanted to touch upon was the Scorsopi game. Losing 4-0 in the sweltering June heat. It was a tough, it was a better loss to take at the time, but what it did, in fact, was it preempted a run of nine games unbeaten. But could you take us through that moment and like how seminal a moment and a point was that for you in the season? I'll start with the end, the end of the match. Uh, you'll remember it clearly. Our goalkeeper, and, and we should talk about him too shortly, but mm. our, our goalkeeper, Darlington Marisanwa, after the match, the guy's got one eye so he's, he's taken two he's belted two balls in his left eye so he's got one eye the other eye's puffed out and he's in tears like the kid is defeated he's in absolute tears right in the context of Darlington is he played 13 matches in the Canadian Premier League he was a goalkeeper on the come up with Edmonton FC the club folds there's no club timing's a funny thing he doesn't find another club he's without a club so you know we had a curious phone call. I reached out to him. It clicked. He ends up coming over as a billet. He's one of our key leaders. He's in the team. So here we go. Fast forward to the Skrskopi game. He's in absolute tears. We've just been belted 4 nil. It's our worst defeat of the season. And we're gutted. And, and I just couldn't help but think, like, like how, did, how did that happen? How did that happen? We conceded three minutes into the game. We conceded three minutes before the end of the first half. We conceded three to four minutes after the first half, like horror film, right? And you reverse engineer it and you're like, you know what? What really happened? I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust myself. So there was a piece where I forgave some of the the major decisions that I should have held for myself, right? And I'm not going to say what that process looked like, but I was passive in a moment where I needed to lead, right? We, We picked some wrong some wrong strategies, we'll say, and, and it ended up biting us. But I remember seeing Darlington crying so hard. And the guy made about four or five super saves. He made four or five saves that he had no business saving. So that game could have been even worse than 4-0. It could have been worse. And I remember being behind the shed, hugging the kid, trying to hold him up. And he, he's a big boy too. So he's, he's on me and I'm not the biggest guy. And I'm trying to hold this kid up. And he's, he's just defeated. Why? Because he's given everything and he didn't get the result. He's given everything. Right? And it was in that moment where I'm like, we got to keep going. We got to double down. It's time going 1% on the processes. It's time to put my name and courage more on the line and own some of the decisions I needed to make. Right? And then things just started to, to domino after that. You know what a huge piece of football is too? It's like talent ID. But as you know, we spoke about, in fact, in the care this morning about the misinterpretation of certain words, under Talent ID, you have a whole host of different pillars. And for me, probably the biggest piece is character. Character is absolutely massive. And I'd like to explore your thinking a little bit more on that because not everyone who was part of the League One team last season from 2022 was retained this year. Not every staff member was retained either. There was new guys recruited, new staff members new players and at the culmination of the season obviously we've begun to see some players like Darlington indeed get a move elsewhere now like how do you go about identifying those good characters in the first place because as you know character is an iterable 
and it's a medium to long term game. So where did you begin to detect those character pieces in the likes of a Darlington, for example? The first thing is I'll say is it, it comes down to a feeling. You can feel it through a phone call and mm. you definitely feel it on the pitch. Like the game reveals all. So when we talk about certain playing identities and certain playing styles, when we're asking questions of players, you can see character. You can see the players who are living with full intention. Every single step they take, every single action they take, they're doing it with intention. So that, that's the first part is the feeling. And the other part of character is like uh, the transparency piece, mm-hmm. right? I remember speaking with Darlington on a phone call and, and I'm saying like, you know, why don't you have a team? I'm genuinely curious. Like you played 13 matches. There must be something up here. Like, why don't you have a team? And, and he shared some, some intimate pieces that I won't repeat, but you just felt the humility in the kid. You just felt it. And you're like, how, how is this possible that this guy slipped through the cracks? How is that taught? Like, so you, you feel it through those conversations, right? And, and I don't know, it's, it's a bit mystical. There's data and all this stuff out there too. But for me, I, I go a lot with, with my gut and what I'm feeling with players. So it's a difficult one for me to understand, uh, to, to articulate. You know, a handful of success stories. And I think it um, solidifies the reason why I came here because... <laughs> You know, it's a tough sell moving from Dubai to the depths of winter in Canada. But one of the main reasons I have to say now this while most why I moved here was because of the profound vision of player development here. And it's interesting because I know the two of us have listened to it simultaneously, but the David Ogilvy biography on the Founders podcast, you know, his mantra at his company was seller else. Here at our club, I certainly think it is a case of develop or else. You're spot on. We don't have the, the luxury of some of these other clubs in the region that have, you know, five, six thousand, ten thousand members in the backyard. We're a club of 400 strong mm. and it's, it's very, very much so develop or else, or else what, or else a player doesn't get an opportunity to experience their dream. A player doesn't get an opportunity to experience the next level. So if we don't do our job, we've lost time. And we've lost an opportunity, right? And I always say this, like, players have time, coaches don't. Yeah. Coaches don't have time. Coaches rush things. Coaches will succumb to certain pressures. But it's definitely develop or else. Or else, you know, Darlington doesn't get to get experience his pathway, which is belonging in the CPL, belonging in a professional environment. Develop or else, uh, Kelsey Agu doesn't get to enter TFC's academy and train right now with TFC2 in the MLS next. And that was a kid who was at Grant McEwen, uh, really going the other direction. Develop or else a local hero, Santi Fonseca, doesn't emerge. He doesn't get his second opportunity. You know, that's a kid who was part of St. Louis's academy growing up. And for whatever reasons, he had character issues early on. And his talent kept him in the room, but his character got him booted. Right. So the or else is very, very real. And, and that means you have to have very clear ideas, very clear playing styles, very clear principles, simple mm-hmm. ones, but they have to be aligned and we all have to agree upon it, right? If you think of a, a football game, I, I see it as a metaphor for life. You have yeah, two teams 100%. representing two different ideas. These ideas are made up of different series of relationships. The relationships are governed by principles. The principles are our agreed upon set of actions, right? These actions are how we express ourselves, right? So... When you're able to understand that, then you can start having different tools 
tactics, principles that help your players do the best that they can do. And then it's about aligning it. Mm. Like our first team has to play the same way that we're asking the minis to play. Otherwise, what are we doing? Right? There has to be something to aspire to. That's the whole emulation piece again, right? Creating local heroes in the backyard. And if you don't do that, then you've lost time. You've lost, you've lost critical windows with these guys. 100%, but I don't even think the, the best results are even condensed just to the prism of football. I think, as you said there, you know, it's a game of life too. So working with you day in, day out and working with the staff, I think not only would the guys have left here with that enhanced view of how the game should be played, but their character, their judgment would have been improved upon. I wouldn't say significantly, but it would have been improved upon for the time that they would have spent here. And that only lends, that does not only lend itself to football, it lends itself to life. It lends itself to so many different arenas. So you might, it's not success necessarily speaking for a guy just to go pro. No, it's like, how long does he stay in the game and pass back on that institutionalized knowledge, which for me is, it's really interesting because it all kind of goes back into the character piece. But the way you spoke about their principles, actions, relationships, how long did it take you to formulate that view or that framework for seeing how football should be played? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a piece by piece accumulation, right? Over time of different cross pollinations and learnings and, you know, take from different fields, you study how complex adaptive systems actually work and operate. You study what governs, you know, the principles behind some of the best teams in the world. You study how modern organizations are evolving. You study blockchain and you start, again, like light bulbs start coming off in terms of, you know, what is it that creates flow in a system, right? And mm -hmm. it's always about the path of least resistance, right? And that's how, that's how I see things, especially when you're picking lineups and players, it's the path of least resistance, not only in terms of quality, but in terms of personality. Like I'm a big believer, you don't get out of life what you want. You get out of life who you are. I'll repeat that. You don't get out of life what you want. You get out of life who you are. And even more so who you are becoming. And you talk about the character piece again. Like there, there's no hiding place. There's no outs. If a player's throwing their arms on the pitch, like that's going to get pulled up on a video meeting. We're going to look at that. And we're going to talk about that in a team. Why did that happen? Where did that emerge from? And what I'm getting back to is there's tensions there. There's blockages, right? And if you think of flows in a system, you got to take out the blockage. So what is it about that person? And that's the character development piece. It's not about telling stories that are inspiring. It's about story living. Mm. It's about going to the moment and reverse engineering it raw with people at eye level. I noticed you did this. Can you tell us a bit more about why that was? And then two things happen. They'll be open and they'll share and there'll be a diffusion of tension, or sometimes they'll crystallize. And when things crystallize, you got to get more curious. It's not the moment to judge. It's about going at a different angle. Anybody else notice that? Does anybody have any feedback for player X? Right? And, and I think you, you take away tensions. And I think those are things that we don't talk about enough as, as coaches and, and practitioners in the field. But ultimately, again, I'll say this, the tactics are out there. They're everywhere. It's the easy stuff. Yeah. It's about recognizing the flow in the system. It's recognizing the blockages. And then you get rhythms and different dynamics. That's when players feel free. Think about your best moments in anything. It's when the shoulders are down. It's when you're breathing well, right? It's when you're eye level with somebody. It's when you have a feeling and you're not really thinking. 100%. So that's kind of how all that emerged over time, right? And that's, it's linked to my upbringing. You know, at 13 years old, uh, 
I was homeless. You know, my mom passed away at 12 and, you know, me and my two older brothers were living in the back of my brother's GMC beat up van, you know, and I was in and out of motels and hotels at different periods. So what does that mean for a young kid? It means you have to be very adaptive or else, right? You have to be very perceptive or else. You have to be very curious, right? That's when I got fascinated by human behavior. Why does this group of people have this and I don't? Why does that group of people have this and I don't? You know, I want to aspire to be like that. How do I get there? Mm-hmm. Right. And the cause and effect is like all success stories are reverse engineerable. And the common thread is intentionality, doing things with intent. But intention is not enough. You got to meet it with the right action. Yeah. For instance, like if I wanted to water a plant, even if my intention is so good to water that plant, if I turn my head and miss watering the plant, have I done right by it? So then you learn it's actually intention with the right action. So to your question about, you know, how did the relationships, principles, actions emerge? It's, it's, it's my life. It's, it's connecting dots. It's looking around and realizing, how do you get things intentional? Well, you need principles. You need guidelines that we're going to abide by. Diagonal passes in the buildup. Can we agree on that? And if not, why not? And again, that's the story living. We're going to pull that on the clip, man. Like we've asked for diagonal passes. Why are you stitching up your mate with a vertical pass there? And there's someone on him. Oh, I thought he was free. All right. You guys cool with developing another principle as a team. Any vertical pass, let's meet it with a diagonal underneath. So can we build a third player principle? You guys up for that? Lovely. Hey, let's take it a step further. It's a vertical pass for a layoff inside. Why inside? Well, let's keep options open. And having options open in life is a great feeling. So don't stitch up your mate so he doesn't have options. Because guess what? This game's not just about you. So to your question, there's... There's all these things and, and it's about being curious. And, and I've had to be that way uh, more so by nurture than, than by nature. Really is interesting because, you know, what I see now in front of me is a blank canvas. And it's a case of you zoom back out and you look at that canvas and you realize, you know, you can't mistake the wood for the trees, wood from the trees even. It's not content. It's what you do with the actual kind of mold and the pace that you're given out, kind of how you can sculpt that as you spoke about intentionally, but, you know, you spoke about one thing there, you know, sell or else, develop or else, adapt or else. I mean, you adapted into your own leadership position too, because you said it's been much more about nurturing your own development and journey to date. I mean, you have raw passion, inundated hunger for the game you're curious to explore. And I would say there is a culture of curiosity within the club. How have you as a leader transmitted that culture of curiosity throughout the club? Because if I'm a bystander coming in right now, I can see right from the minis program to the men and the women's first team, it's pretty aligned in unison between using the language and a lot better. Obviously it could be a lot better in certain areas, but overarchingly I do see that culture of curiosity. Where do you even begin to create that? Uh, You know what, that's from study too. And by that, I mean like studying where success is happening what mm. fields, what areas, what type of leaders are having success. And there's a common thread of curiosity. There's a common thread of wonder, right? And one of the first things I did when I came to the club was I, I created a, a video curriculum. And I say the word curriculum loosely because I'm not a, a big fan of it, but a video curriculum, which was just a bunch of questions. Mm. I didn't tell a single coach what they had to do. I never said, this is the model we have to play. It was a bunch of questions like, how could you structure your buildup base? How many ways 
Can the future player play out of this type of press? How many ways can we solve centrally? How many ways can we create a free player? How many ways can we use the free player? Right? And there's what and how questions. Like what questions get you like a singularity of focus? Like what can you see here if you're asking a player or a coach about a clip? And then it's how many ways can we solve and how questions change your breadth of perception and the depth of perception. Right? So you learn the art of asking questions. Right? And the art of asking questions is about opening perception. Perception is linked to your awareness. When you link your awareness and perception, you see things for reality. You see things for what they are. And it isn't until you see things in reality for what they truly are, then you can start innovating. Then you can start creating. Until then, it's copy to copy or copy to create, I should say, which you mm-hmm. see a lot of coaches doing now. So for me, and it's not taught on the coaching courses. You don't get enough of it. Curiosity is the complex foundational base that everybody needs. And from there, from a complex base, you can do very cool things. So a lot of that's just come from me asking questions, genuinely coming in and asking questions. How do coaches see the game? And then you meet them at eye level. Mm. Okay, this is where they're at. I can learn and take something from them. I'm going to ask them another question to stretch them. Right? And you want to live in that stretch zone constantly. So there's comfort and then there's, you know, that, that over the line where you're in fear or unsafe. And I try to feel that healthy tension in between. Right. And that's where cool things start to happen. And what I'm most intrigued to learn about and pick about there now is, does it have to be experiential learning or can it be through wisdom and the art of asking good questions? I mean, would you be more of the belief and the volition that people need to go through and make the mistake themselves? Totally. Yes. Like, uh, You can never speak about something that's not in your experience. Or I should say you should not speak about something that's not come through your experience. Hmm. Otherwise, that is knowledge. Yeah. Okay, the wisdom is knowledge applied. We know this, right? So yes, completely. Like there's a piece too of, you know, 360 support is is a common language or model we use in the club and in leadership around the world. And I'm big on alongside and underneath support. So it's a lot of observing and being there with my coaches and also being behind them if they fall. But they have to experience it. They have to fall, right? And it isn't until you experience it, you use your reflection, you use the references you have, then it becomes your wisdom. Then it becomes a truth, right? Until then, it's knowledge. So the experience piece is critical, but the questions are what give you the curiosity. It's what spurs you. It's the catalyst, right? And we talk about curiosity catalysts in the club, right? I think that's going to be a role in future organizations. (laughs) There will be curiosity catalysts working at you know, all these big organizations and in football clubs, somebody whose role it is to go and ask fantastic questions, deeper questions, questions that go to the core and subcore level of the being, right? So I think there's something more there that we need to explore. And you yourself, have you ever been stuck as a coach, not knowing what question to ask? A lot of times, yeah. Yeah, I still get stuck in, in, that, in those moments. And I think those are the times to pause and step back. You know, I was very fortunate to to meet some people along my way who made time for me. And, and one of them was a guy named Danny Worthington. Uh, he's the one of the key figures behind our women's national team in the last 10 years, building the infrastructure strategies, the IPP plans for key players. And he was doing regional visits. At the time, I was one of seven regional directors in Canada, uh, working with 32 female athletes in Saskatchewan, helping to progress them onto their dreams uh, of reaching the youth national teams. And and Danny met with me in one of his visits, and I'll never forget the day he put up a clip and he just asked me what I saw. And I remember just freezing. 
I just froze. I'm like, is he asking me something that I should tell him? What am I supposed to be looking for? And it was such a humbling moment because I didn't have a reference for how I saw the game. Right. And mm -hmm. he actually never told me anything. He just asked a series of questions. And I like I just started getting all these pop-ups later. I was reflecting, you know, back in action later at home that night. And I didn't sleep. I must have filled an entire notebook of more questions. And then I took a pause and I'm like, well, how did I get all this knowledge? I'm like, well, this guy just asked me a few questions. So back to your piece about the experience, I'm a big believer that all of that wisdom is already within everybody. I really believe it's there. And then it's a question of questioning. Mm. It's about people who create space to let things flow out. It's about people who know how to provoke so that things can emerge through you, which is the tension piece. And when you're open and relaxed, things come through you, right? Just like this podcast, there's going to be moments where things are flowing and there's going to be moments where I'm tense. I'm probably overthinking it. I'm probably thinking about something too far in the, in the future, right? So it's a question of that, right? And so again, I was very lucky to meet somebody who, in my opinion, is a master of questioning. And that's always stuck with me, right? Mm. And previous to that, I was somebody who I had a lot of knowledge, a lot of knowledge. And with that, I wanted to impose. I have knowledge. Take it. This works. Use it. I've seen it work. Why can't you make it work? And that is so wrong. It is so wrong. You, you, you lack the empathy. You lack the awareness. And that's the other thing, self and situational awareness, right? Knowing that, you know, the world's not really revolving around you. You're just a piece of captured life, right? And, and you're part of that. And you got to change your view on things. Like, I don't view... Uh, situations really as is anymore. I view situations as energy. Mm. I'm trying to be conscious of that, right? And then it's about those knots and ties of energy. So that curiosity allows you to take things past surface level again. What do you mean when you say energy? Energy, I mean, like, right now, what are you feeling? And flow for most part. Yeah. Caffeinated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah hyped up, ready to go. <laughs> you know, and... and I don't know if it's something I got to learn more about, but like I feel tensions very strongly in my body and mm. I feel when I'm very loose, I'm very conscious of that, let's say, right? And so I try to, I try to recognize that even when working with players, like you can see them doing things well or making mistakes, but I'm somebody who needs to be close to people. I need to be close to players. And when I am, I could start to sense things, right? You can start to sense tensions. And then of course, with your eyes, you can, you can read things too, body language and such. And then you have to adapt from there. Okay, and maybe I can see a body language and I can challenge someone, but it's always better to ask a question, right? And it's always important that you recognize things, like using simple things like, I noticed. Are you open to feedback, Connor? I noticed this happen. Can you tell me more? Right, and then you give them opportunity to diffuse tensions versus you saying, you look like you're stuck, do this. You look like you're stuck, receive the ball this way. Right, so you gotta bring people to a place where they're in control, they're aware that they have a choice and that they're responsible. They're responsible for diffusing their energies. It's amazing. It's amazing because like to have that high level of situational awareness, it's like in moment you have to put the space, you have to put yourself between incident space and yourself. And obviously you may harbor different energies yourself. So working alongside players, working alongside coaches of different energy groups too, you kind of have to kind of remove yourself and just nearly be like a third party in amongst the experience. Yeah, 100%. There's times yeah. where you got to zoom out. And even when we're at TriCar and all the sessions are going on, like <laughs> you feel it too. Like you don't want to, and I know the feeling when you're running a session and there's eyes on you, you, you have tension, right? And 
that's not necessary. Some people will say that's healthy to have that. That's the growth piece too. But there's times where I'll have to walk to the far end of TriCar to watch a session just so there, there can be some flow because I don't want to pass my tension to a coach who may transmit it to a player, right? I don't want to disturb that, all right? So there's different ways to, to manipulate and work with that. But observation is a big, big piece and stepping back. And look, I'm no expert at it. I fail many times. I stimulus response into many things. You've seen it too. And I got a very emotional side too because of how sensitive I am to those energies. And there's times where I could spiral. But when you're spiraling, the most important is to put the brakes on, take a breath, and then you zoom out and take a take another picture. And Dr. Kerry uh, Evans is phenomenal at that. If you look into any of his research about redhead, bluehead, staying calm in the moment, step back, step in. He's got a ton of tools with working with uh, those type of spaces. What I'm fascinated to kind of explore now, the depths of is, for me, there's certain coaches and there's certain people in all walks of life that can best capture that essence of energy. And they don't necessarily control it, but they guide it. So for context, it's something we spoke about an awful lot. 2019 would have attended countless games. I think it was 60, 65 games of professional football that calendar year alone. You know, big Chelsea fan, countless games at Stamford Bridge. It was at the two of the EFL playoff finals, Champions League finals at Copa America. But I remember attending a Bristol City Leeds United game in the middle of August 2019. First time I've seen a Marce- Marcelo Bielsa team play alive. And I kid you not, it was like a spiritual experience. I've never seen as much harmony and synchronicity between players, coaches and fans in my entire life. Bielsa, of which I know is a huge hero to yourself, Yanni. Yeah, and I think our electricity, uh, electricity, electric city game was uh, a small, small micro glimpse of probably what you experienced at a much grander scale. And that's exactly it. It's like, how do you get everybody flowing in one direction with one intention? And that's the key word, intention. The second you have players with their own individual intention, the second you have staff members with their own individual intention, you create tensions and you don't get the flow you want. You're not moving in the same direction, right? So there's something about submitting yourself to a cause, submitting yourself to the team, you know, totally going all in on what we're doing. And you know the feeling, it, win, lose, or draw, when you do that, there really is no lose. Win, mm. lose, or draw, you leave with a feeling of satisfaction. You leave with a feeling that I truly gave my very best for something that I believed in, and it was worth it. Do you think coaches and players like should have or should receive invitations before they make that decision to go all in? Or in the best case scenario, is it like a case of blind faith, I'm doing this? Give me a for instance, tell me more about that. It's just my own subjective piece, but I could see this year, for instance, with the team. Like, I would say three quarters of the guys truly were bought in from the start, but I would say there would have been a lot of, to say, high potential individuals within the squad once they started seeing other guys succeed and started getting noticed, started getting recognised a lot more from peers, coaches, media, like, as a case of, wow, this is going somewhere, I better jump on the bus or I better get off. Like, there's no time for this. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's it's fit in or fuck off, really, Rough. in a way. Uh, part of my language there. But yeah, you start to feel the flow and momentum. And who doesn't want to be part of that? Hmm. Who doesn't want to be part of that? It's not a coincidence that a, you know, a team of 23 guys, uh, a club that finished dead last, third highest 
place improvement in the table has now signed four guys professionally. Another one hoping to sign, you know, later this week. That's not a coincidence, right? There's a scary momentum behind that. There's a unwavering commitment to team. And that was built up over a lot of small little actions. And you were a huge part of that. You know, trust is gained in drips and lost in buckets. And every single session, every single interaction was an opportunity of us to gain trust. And there was players at the beginning who, you know, they probably just thought it was another season. Mm-hmm. There's another coach coming in with some other staff who they're going to try to impose their ideas. And, you know, players are like big ships in the ocean. You know, it takes a lot of time and energy to turn the ship. But once you get it going and the momentum's gone, it's, it, it's taken off. Yeah, and, like and a rising kind of, tidal of salt boats. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I think even coming into the club, it was captured in a mantra, feel who we are. You'll be better better off to explain it than me. But for me, from my own experience here, I'd have to say it's really metaphysical, not only in the way players feel loved and supported, but you can also see it in a playing style. You can also see how it drips through the fans at the games. In fact, it was just like even when the school year finished, the attendances didn't stagnate. They kept on going forward slowly by slowly by slowly. Feel who we are. Yeah. What, does, what does that mean to you? The first thing that comes to mind for me is our ball boys. And, and you'll remember it. Six or seven of them, 11, 12-year-old boys, they, they've taken a few bookings, mm. rightly or wrongly, uh, delaying games. And they've actually assisted a few goals, <laughs> playing the throws quick to our boys. So they were part of the match. And, and that's what the feel who we are piece was, was like, Everybody needed to feel part of the game. Hmm. So when I came to London, one of the first things I was clear on is when we play, the fans are playing. When we play, the ball boys are playing. When we play, all the coaches in the academy are playing. Everybody is in this match with us. And the only way you can do that is through a feeling, right? Expressing a feeling, giving invitations for others to engage in that feeling. And look, there were some matches. I I had a three-game suspension uh, this season where I had to sit with some of the supporters. And those were great experiences too, because you're sitting there with moms and dads and, and people in the community and, and they're at the edge of their seats. Mm. They're genuinely gravitated towards the pitch. And that was such a great feeling to be there and like see people so engaged in, in a League One match. It was, it was so unique. Yeah, the ball boys themselves is such a, <laughs> such a class metaphor for the club in terms of feeling how connected they were. Like being at the games, being in the dressing room before the game, sometimes being, certainly being in the dressing room after, especially if we won, as evidenced by those Instagram videos. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the kids themselves, like, to be playing the same way as these older guys are playing, like the likes of a Macklin, the likes of a Thiago, like looking up to a Santi and KB, trying the same thing, doing or utilising the same language, playing to the same principles. For me, from the age of 11 or 12 up into 22, 23-year-old proven players, like that's, that's nearly unheard of, especially in North American soccer. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've worked in, in a few different provinces, but everywhere I've been, I've, I've tried to do something the same in terms of creating some type of alignment in playing mm-hmm. style. Uh, and we're very fortunate at the club to have the type of kids we have who are so willing to try and I think it's it's when they see our women play or when they see our our men play, like they just think, wow, this is cool. These guys and girls are living on the edge. Like, this is cool. I want to try this. We're far from perfect. Like uh, things take time. Yeah. We're, we're two and a half years going into our third year of the project. Like things take time. But the willingness to adopt the principles and concepts by these players is remarkable. 
And, you know, to touch back upon the methodology and I suppose the type of football being played, you have a term called space artists that I think best encapsulates it. And could you elaborate upon that, Yanni? For me, I, I'm a, I love the players who can solve off the ball. Mm. I love the players who value the space, right? And it's no different off the pitch. It's the people who create space for gatherings, events, conversations. It's the same thing on pitch. It's the players who are able to create for others without the ball. So a space artist is somebody who can solve problems efficient and effectively with less space and less time. Mm. So what does that mean in the future game? Well, we know that the defending team sets the problem. We also know that these problems, these pressing strategies are becoming more and more sophisticated. There's hybrid strategies now where it's half zonal, half man marking. We also know that the pressing changes high and low zones on the pitch. We also know that in game, there's momentum shifts where the pressing is going to change. So that means we need players who can adapt. So it's not enough to adapt with the one player on the ball. It's how are the 10 other players moving? That's what a space artist is. It's about creating and using space off the ball. It's about 11 players intentionally moving to solve with one brain. And of course, the way you solve is variable. You can have variability in your team intentions, right? But how you're moving off the ball, for me, is the most valued thing. And I think it's the most undercoached aspect right now in youth sports. Undercoached. Undercoached in terms of how. Mm. How do you coach it? You know, it's very easy to see what's happening on the ball, but how are you impacting your ball far winger who's actually three or four passes away, maybe 60 yards away from the ball because they need to be moving intentionally as well. Why? Well, even the way that their hips are facing the opposite goal will impact the ball near fullback, which actually affects their supporting center back, which sends a domino across the back line. And if the back line's compromised, the midfielders have doubt. If the midfielders have doubt, the first line has doubt. So everybody needs to be making these chinks, if you will, in the opposition, causing problems, causing doubt, right? And so we need to coach those little, little things, the little game insights of how you're impacting the game away from the ball. And how you're impacting the game away from the ball, at what age do you think you can begin training that? As early as possible. Mm. And even with our minis, we're, we're exploring a lot of these underload games, you know, two versus three. And you got one player on the ball and they have one teammate versus three defenders. So they're underloaded. So how does that one teammate who doesn't have the ball impact the three? How are you supporting? And you can help the little ones with that. It's simple questions and curiosities. Are you helping your mate by coming closer? Or are you helping them by moving somewhere else? Where would you move? How would you move? Right? Show me. So there's different conversations you can do, whether you use the board or, or having chats. But for me, you can start that as early as possible. That's interesting. And who got you down think, I suppose down this road thinking about how space artists would emerge and evolve because it is a concrete term and it is a concrete definition as to what kind of the future player will need and superimposed on them to solve intentionally and be part of that complex adaptive system. But how did you get down this road in the first place? Uh, curiosity again. Uh, I made a decision very early on to uh, not follow the herd Mm. And, and go out on Fridays and Saturdays and, and weekends. And those nights were filled with reading research papers on everything and anything. Those weekends were filled with watching football on whatever I can get my hands on. Whether it was the old Saki videos on YouTube when he was training the national team or was getting your hands on a tactical footage, which you know back then was like a, a bar of gold <laughs> if you can get one of those. 
and I'd watch clips over and over and over. I'd rewatch matches. I'd pause a match and I wouldn't go on a clip until getting clarity on what every single player was doing and what I thought they were doing to impact the opposition. You know, I, I, I'd spend hours on a freeze frame, reverse engineering intentions before all that stuff was even out there in terms of the methods of how to do that. So my curiosity was just flying at the time. And then you get cross-pollinations. I was studying complex adaptive systems. You're studying what rhythm means in music and how different frequencies and tones impact things. And then you realize, okay, why are these top managers, Tuchel, Pep, Klopp, all these guys talking about rhythms, rhythms? Well, the rhythm is like all-encompassing. A rhythm is how we all agree to receive the ball. So there's communication. It's the tempo of how we pass the ball for communication. Then you start studying Latin matches and you're like, whoa, this pass between these two players is sending a very clear message to somebody away from the ball. That's cool. So it was curiosity and studying and studying and studying. And, you know, I still stand by that. I don't go out on the weekends. I'm still up with my laptop. And whenever I can get my hands on a film, I'm, I'm putting some music on and I'm watching those games. And you just get different pop-ups. So it's, it, it always stems from curiosity. Yeah, like being a curiosity catalyst, I think you're that in spades. I mean, being able to kind of cross-pollinate, as you spoke about there, between music, between football and the different disparate geographical regions, between the study of complex adaptive systems, I think it's pretty unique when you're able to kind of utilise that and integrate it and make it whole. But again, it's a framework, I suppose. It's a framework for kind of viewing the game, but also viewing as to how these kids ought to be coached. So, I mean... Deciphering knowledge, deciphering like something from a picture with your eyes, perspective, taking that down a T, taking that down a level, superimposing onto the kids, teaching them what you see or showing them what you ought to see. Where do you even begin to kind of untap and solve that puzzle? Because there's so many layers of complexity there, even just to get from A to B. Yeah. And you got to really get in the glass elevator for that one because you got to zoom out further and mm. not only think, what are the tools that I'm learning and what I'm seeing in this future game, but what's the end in mind for this player? Well, they actually may be part of a game that doesn't exist yet. They may be needed in a style of play that doesn't exist yet. So what's the foundation that we need to give them so that they can seamlessly enter any team, whether that be university, local colleges, uh, teams abroad, professional, semi-professional, or maybe coaching one day. Mm. So what's the base that we need it to be? Well, Really, it's about looking into the history of the game. What hasn't changed? Not what's going to change. And what hasn't changed is you're always going to need to deny, create, and use space. What's changing is how effective and efficient you do that. How variably you can do that. How you can do that with changing problems. So the starting point is, how do we serve this player in a way that they can have success when you're not there? And that's the ultimate goal for any coach in any field, right? So with that foundation, then you take a bit of an exploratory take to it, right? You don't need to have the answer. You just need to be willing to try different things. You need to be willing to explore new spaces. And then you develop things where you simplify, right? Like a player doesn't need 10 options. If I yeah. gave you 10 options for, you know, what type of coffee you want to drink, that's going to take some think time away from you. But if I give you two options, it's one or the other, right? So you give them different solutions, right? You do it through good questioning. And then if you get a bunch of players doing that together and they start self-organizing and realizing each other's relational patterns and which foot they want the ball on and which space they want the ball on, then innovation starts happening from them. They become the game. They are the creators. And that's when you start learning from them. That's the coolest part. 
Yeah, I mean, like, just when I hear you speaking there, you know what it reminds me of is Stephen Kotler's book, The Air of Impossibly, speaks about flow states, speaks about all the different neurochemicals as well. And what's very interesting is how I relate that back to football is that you see football becoming a game of less space, less time, calling for more apt and intentional problem solving. It almost seems as though we're getting to a stage if we aren't there already, the game is pretty much positionless at the moment. What, what I'm fascinated with right now is like function precedes form. Mm. So like the function precedes form means it's the intention that gives rise to the shape. It's not enough to just watch a clip and be like, oh, well, there's a system. Yeah. There's a four, two, three, one, and there's some triangles. It's what are they trying to do? What is their function? And when they are trying to do things with intention, then we give a label like there's a triangle. There's a structure to it. So I think right now, coaches are going to be searching for systems and constellations, which may not even be there. What's going to be happening is a lot more fluidity, a lot more seamless interchange. So two and three player movements have always been part of the game, yeah. right? But I think now you're going to see players who can play in two or three spaces. I don't say positions. I'm intentional when I say they can play in two or three spaces while keeping, number one, a team intention, and number two, a unit or a triangle intention, right? And then their individual intention is how they choose to express themselves within one style. So there's a team intention. There will be sub-triangle intentions based on the space and location on the pitch. And then there'll be profile, which is individual intentions. Mm. And then I think you see guys like Arteta at the top level and, and of course other managers too who are, who are fluidly changing in-game microstructures Right. And we will give analysis to say, here's the system and here's what it looked like when really it's one or two very little things. Yeah. And what impact do you foresee this having on team training cycles, I suppose, going forward in the future? Because it seems to me as though less coaching is nearly better with all due respect to kind of guarding, maintaining the team intention. But for me, there seems to be more opportunity and more aptness there to do IPP work and having specific or maybe position-specific coaches within football clubs that we're seeing that's on the rise at the moment. Yes, I'm huge on that. We mm -hmm. did a lot of that with the men this year, uh, preparing guys to play in different spaces in-game, right? And as long as they're clear on the role, you can shift a player, uh, you know, a fullback into a higher uh, position, maybe in the half space, and that changes a lot of things, right? And it does start with the IPP work. It's like, here's your start space. Here's your three spaces you can move into. And here's the domino of how your two players around you will adapt when you're in that space. So it's seamless triangles, right? We do a lot of that work. We're working with Mo Farsi right now in the MLS. He's a wing back. So we're showing him what happens when he comes inside and his relationship with the 10 and the nine and how the triangle inverts, yeah. right? But what stays the same is there's always somebody pinning. There's always somebody under and along. And then there's somebody who's like the cog in the wheel, your center of gravity right? Where your main information source come from. Like players are spheres of influence and the better a player is, the, the greater their sphere of influence. You think of Messi on a pitch, no matter where Messi stands on the pitch, his sphere of influence is the entire pitch. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I'm standing on a pitch, you're going to get a tiny little circle around me, Yeah. right? So if you get a lot of players with very clear team intentions, those spheres of influence will inter interact and intertwine. And then chemistry starts to emerge. That's when cool things start to happen. That's when synergies start to emerge. Um, spontaneous things start to happen, 
right? So you see that with certain players like Odegaard and Saka, yeah. how they're moving off each other. So I think in the IPP work, it's about raising the player's self and situational awareness about how they're moving in relation to the team idea and then how they're moving in relation to two or three other teammates. And from your work with not only Mo Farsi, but a few others, there seems to be this real hunger and appetite for these details, for more work regarding this. Why aren't clubs, even at the pro level, investing more in this type of work? I think we're going to see a lot more of it in the future. I think the teams at the cutting edge are already doing it. You just don't see them on the telly. Like There's four or five guys behind the scenes that are strictly IDP guys. And where I'm fascinated is how more clubs don't have this now, especially in like you know, academy level where the objective is to progress players on. The head coach doesn't have enough time. The head coach is going to be a role that I believe is going to emerge into one where you're the guardian of team intentions. You're the guardian of team intentions. So you're responsible for character development. You're responsible for clarity of playing style. You're responsible for ensuring that the team stays binded in that way. You're responsible for your staff. It is not possible for a coach to then do IDP with 23 players. There's not enough time. So academies need to invest a lot more time into this if they're serious about what they're doing. So I think this is going to start to emerge a lot more. And that's where I'm fascinating. I'm doing a lot of deep dive into that. And I've been lucky to kind of cross-pollinate my way there in my journey. And it benefits me as a head coach too, because I know what I want my staff to be doing, right? So you're spot on. That's something we're going to see a lot more in the future game, for sure. Because I think it ties into two of the main pieces. You look at any life cycle of an academy player you have to identify you have to develop you have to migrate but under development you also have retention and you need time under tension you need time in the building it's interesting I did a you'd love this one actually I did a great podcast earlier on this week with Bruno Costa director of recruitment and talent ID at San Jose Earthquakes fantastic guy Bruno check it out it'll be out in a few weeks but um, Bruno worked with the CBF the Brazilian Federation for 15 years over two spells and in between he worked as academy director at Fluminense huge club in Brazil but like mightily mightily with during his tenure there under-resourced under-staffed bottlenecks galore goes into the building he's there working with Branco Brazilian legend played multiple World Cups left back and he was under the remit right get to figure out the bottlenecks over the next fortnight cut people He said he couldn't sleep at night thinking of getting rid of these people with so much institutionalized knowledge. And four years later, fast forward, the two guys he ought to fire, one became his right hand, the other became his left hand. And at the end of four years, this is back in 2007, 2008 now, they had sold sold 70 or sorry, 75 to 80 million US dollars worth of talent in those four years. Wow. So it's like under-resourced, not adequate infrastructure, but just huge, dedicated, passionate, unreasonable amounts of dedication towards your staff. It certainly takes an army of people to develop, doesn't it? Yeah, and it starts with one person. It starts with Mm. one person making the time and making that the culture. Make time for your people. Invest in individuals. Like it's obviously a team game, but the team doesn't exist without individuals. And you're spot on. Players need individual time, especially the modern player with how their brains are being rewired and what they're seeing in the universe and on social media, like this TikTok piece, the the app, like during during COVID, I had it for, for a day and I, I lost three hours on the app, man. I lost three hours and I, when I stopped, I'm like, I got to delete this shit now. 
Mm. Like it's rewiring the brain. But like, if you know anything about the app, it's like little seven second snippets. So what is that doing? The seven second snippets are rewiring your attention span. It's changing things here. It's changing your perception. So you can't go to players in a certain way anymore. You have to come with a customized approach. You have to gamify it. You have to make sure it's uh, bespoke to them, right? You have to speak in little seven second spurts. You have to ask questions in a way where it's like, boom, we're moving on to the next. They want things to change fast, right? That's, that's in their nature. So, but it comes back down to what you said there first. It's the individual time. And then it's knowing who you're giving the time to yeah. and what are their needs? What are their needs that they, they, they need in terms of their desires? And what are their needs in terms of the ones that have been left unmet? So that's the coaching piece. Right? That's the belonging piece. That's the safety piece. That's the belief in others piece. Like the role of a coach is to help someone see a version of themselves they can't see on their own. I've always believed that. Right. And if you have a limitation for a player, that's one of the most dangerous things. 100%. Your role is yeah. to break their limitation. Even if you don't even believe it, your role is to see unlimited belief in that player. And then it's up to them to climb the ladder. It's up to them to grab it. But never should we put barriers. But again, that's that's the time piece and being conscious how you're using your time, not time for the sake of time. And you see all these academies with everything, all the tech, all the gizmos, everything, immaculate facilities, and they're not producing any talent. And then the story you just gave there, never underestimate the, the potential of time with people. 100%. And I think, you know, I won't say the word, but I said it to you last week, had to fill in, take somebody else's session at the club. And although we're you know, although we're using the same language, doing the same drills, we don't have that connection with the players, despite me knowing their names individually, but not having time under tension with them. It's like you feel like an imposter. And it's a case even like the lessons I've gained this year alone, coaching girls for the first time, I'd say in 10, 11 years, have been worth four or five years in coaching alone. Because it's realized everything that you do has to be in service of the player. Yeah. But if you don't understand the person behind the player, forget about it I like, think forget about it think of the 180 that you, you've had with the the 17s right now like where they were yeah. when you, you had them and now how they're moving off each other the relationships the banter you have like I'm learning from studying your sessions when I'm sitting there watching it's such a pleasure and for me it's like wow you came in here not ever worked with female athletes before to you look like you've done it for 10 years uh, and it's incredible to watch how they respond those girls will run through a brick wall for you how did you get to that? Like, how did you get to that point with them? It's interesting though, over time, like you try to go in and you said earlier on, it's copy to create. Well, it was copy to create for me from my last environment. So last environment, at least very much, I would say authoritative, a lot of respect for the leader. So you think you're just going to come in and kind of, yeah, I'll tweak this and that with respect to the kind of the methodology that we have here, but I'm going to keep the delivery the same and you find out over time, no, nah, doesn't work. Like you can't coach in service of yourself. You have to kind of, but you know what? The, the thing is too, for me, I had to reach Nadir's throughout the season countless times with it too. And by all means, like there's still a long way to go with certain groups within the club that I'm coaching as well. But it's like, if you spend the time with people more so to get to know them on a personal basis, it's like they'll come to you when they're ready to learn. And it's like, I've had to lower standards I think for the better too. I think for the better too. I think once you put the bear so high in certain instances, it's demotivating. 
because you realize you're never going to get there without the time itself. And it's like the slow trickle of time. You have to be able and you have to be willing to credit yourself for small little milestones and achievements along the way. And I think zooming out, looking at that retention piece, that's absolutely massive. Because if you can have a coach, support staff, players in the same building, two, three years work, you can absolutely achieve legitimately everything once you have people running towards the same direction. I believe that. Yeah. I believe that wholeheartedly, Connor. I really believe that. I believe that especially youth with the right intentions in the right room with the right people mm. can do phenomenal things. And all it takes is two or three years of really concentrated effort, really concentrated effort in the same direction. Yeah. Do you think though, you know, we're speaking about development, we're speaking about time. You think that's at odds with the nature of society, particularly here in North America? From my own experience, like very fast paced, wouldn't say transient, but very fast paced, very go, 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 very next thing. Because I've seen a microcosm of it here inside the club. For me, it's very much achievable. But my question to you is someone who's been embedded in this reality, really, your whole life. I mean, how come others aren't taking or accepting the invitation to try at least? Space. Mm. And, and what I mean by that is like, if you think of TriCar, we have a little clubhouse. That's a very humble one, but there's a space for the players to come in first, right? There's a space for them around the pitch, right? Coaches make time before and after training to connect in. There's space for the players. There's space for those interactions, right? And I think uh, a lot of the other places I've worked in Canada, things are so quick. It's like uh, factory worker style um, football clubs where players are in and out. It's next session, in and out, in and out, in and out. And a coach is running three or four sessions back to back to back. And they, they're just chain conveyor belt of players entering the session and going home. So you lose that connection. You lose that feeling, right? So what's the point? Like anybody can do that anywhere. People mm -hmm. want to go somewhere for an experience. All humans want expansion, right? And that comes through experiencing things. And you don't get to have that high level experience unless it's shared with others. So the biggest thing is having spaces and that... At another level, you can call that culture, which yeah. is really that, like having a football culture where people value those things. Mm. And, and I think that's something we have a lot of room to improve in our country here. You know, for me, a huge piece of it is like, uh, well, that's two thirds of the puzzle that we've explored, identify, which is already, as you know, tough in this context, develop that we're speaking through this podcast, but also to migrate. You know, for me as an outsider moving over here, a country with the second largest geographical landmass in the world. To have a national division in the world's biggest sport with only eight teams stretching from all the way in Western Victoria to all the way east in Halifax is... Phew, it's not promising, given that there's countless clubs all throughout all 12 provinces here in this country trying to develop, that have countless players with dreams and ambitions of playing the sport. But... It, Fair enough. You want to play for your national team. You want to migrate to Europe. You want to do the done thing. Nowadays, MLS too. I get it. But to have that safe landing net, I don't think it's readily available. No. Look, we said it earlier. We have four guys that have signed on to professional environments. We have another one who will be signed. But the truth is, Connor, if you weren't here with some of your connections, we, we wouldn't have made half those bridges. Right. There's a few guys in the CPL and, and TFC that I had to pick up the phone for in our backyard, but there's there's a player in Dubai at Precision's new project that's because of you and your connection. 
right? So it's, it's having people in your club that can bridge those pieces. It's someone who's dedicated to migration. Now, of course, the professional academies, they have their own riddles with how they do that, but we're very fortunate to have you. We, without you, I don't know if we would have signed two or three other guys on. All this work could have gone for naught. And again, it's the life of a Canadian coach. Not only am I the TD and the first team coach, there's days where I'm washing the bibs and there's days where I'm also the sporting director of the club. So that's just the riddle of, of it in Canada. I mean, you talk about pathways too, like what's the pathway for a Canadian coach? You, you know, you start on the, with the minis and the grassroots level and you can work your way up to be a, you know, in a smaller club, you can be a TD and then what? There's, there's eight professional teams. So you have eight head coaching jobs, mm. two of which probably are going to be there to the day they retire. The other six coaches may rotate in and out, right? So you're fighting for six professional jobs if you really have a dream of a Canadian coach to coach in your own uh, country. So then migration becomes necessary, right? And that's healthy. And sometimes you have to leave home to come home. Unless your mission is to sit here and build the infrastructure, I, I don't have that passion. Mm. Uh, I'm not in a stage of my life to do that. Maybe one day when I have many more gray hairs and a lot more money, maybe I can help build the ecosystem here. Uh, and when I was younger, I had a big passion and took a big responsibility on wanting to do that. But at the moment, it's not where my heart is. My heart is just helping the people around me, helping the people in my sphere who have the right intentions and the right character and helping nudge them on. And of course, just being in good company too. That's so important to me. We say mm. this all the time. Like 100%. The reason why yeah. we do what we do is we value these conversations, whether these mm. microphones are here or not. We'd spend an hour or two today having these type of conversations. 100%. And it's, you know what, it's all, it's not even with the end in mind. It's just doing it for the sake of doing it. I had a great conversation there. I told you yesterday with Pat Nevin of the BBC. Over 820 first team appearances, Chelsea, Everton, Scotland, Tranmere Rovers, chairman of the PFA for four years. And the guy nearly turned down the phone on Chelsea when his transfer from Clyde to Chelsea was going through at the time. It was Clyde, a humble second division club. Chelsea were second division, bear in mind, back then too, in 1984. And uh, he originally wanted to turn down the, mood, the move because he just wanted to retain a passion for football. He wanted to keep playing the game and not just have any external pressures on the side. And I think there's an awful lot of, of this that it boils down to. It's just doing it for sheer unbridled joy and passion that I know countless people within this club, even within the city, three huge clubs within the city, bear in mind too. Like, it's great to be in a city where there's so many like little little micro-tensions brewing and little rivalries on the service too. Like, um, like, but London's just a fantastic, it's such an interesting ecosystem and hub when you see kind of the context behind a large proportion of immigrants, uh, heavily British, Portuguese, Italians, a lot of Colombians too, a lot of Brazilians, in fact, as well. Like it's so diverse here, and I think, like it just adds to the flavor of the game as well. And if you look at, we're a humble club, we have four hundred and fifty kids in the academy, come from all over the world. Like, and it's just so interesting. You could be in Tricare on just a normal Tuesday and see so many kids turn up in the FC London gear that will be changing before or after into different football kits from all over the world. Like, that's why I'm in the game. Just conversations about the game involved in the game. Sometimes it's that simple. 
Yeah, 100%. And, and we're very lucky. Like we have <laughs> we have a Colombian contingent that would come to the games. We had the yeah, Nigerian yeah, yeah. crowd. We had <laughs> we had absolutely everything. We had I remember Darlington, you know, in the change room, he'd go in after his warm up and I'd be in there too just to, you know, clear my head a little bit before the the final whistle or the first whistle of the match. And he'd be calling his mom in Zimbabwe and be they'd be doing their prayers and I was just like, you know, what a privilege it is to be around this guy, getting to learn from his experiences. And mm. you just had that. You had that in the team in spades. We had guys from Hungary and yeah, it was so cool. Would it ever interest you to explore and go abroad? Because I know you spent all of your footballing career really coaching in Canada. Connor, I've tried for many years uh, and in a period where it wasn't so fashionable to be a Canadian coach. Uh, you know, I've saved all the emails. I have hundreds of emails putting different type of CVs to try to get showcasing my work and try to get myself out there and telling clubs I'd come over for free and I would clean boots. I'd do whatever the heck it took. And I, I didn't get many replies. I didn't. So I tried. I really tried to leave. I really tried. And I think now it's a point uh, in our country where we've just qualified for a World Cup. We're hosting another one. The whole energy around Davies uh, and what he did at Bayern Munich uh, you know, our women's national team winning an Olympic gold medal. It's kind of cool to be Canadian, but at the same time, I think the footballing world is realizing it actually doesn't matter where you're from. If you're a good character, if you have the right intentions, if you have methods, mm. and if you can work part of a team, it doesn't matter where you're from. And I think, you know, 10 years ago, kind of when I was getting kickstarted and into my journey, it was very, very hard to find that connection point. And so right now I am open. I'm, I'm open to different projects. You know, I was very clear with the ownership here. I'd be here for three years and I would set a foundation and I would help succession planning and I would help the club in the right direction. And then we also have a strategy where I'd stay tied into the club for life because uh, anywhere I've been in any project I've been, I still help. Mm. So it's not a case of I've worked or coached a player or a club and I'm out. No, I'm, I'm a coach for life. That's what I do. It's, it's in our core. You're the same way. So yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know where things will take us, uh, but yeah, I'm totally open. And you know, it's cool. I was speaking to a kid here in Canada. He's, uh, I want to say he's 17 and he's, he's going on to his UEFA A and he's, he's actually on pace to be the first ever uh, UEFA pro coach, sorry, the youngest ever UEFA pro coach. And he's a Canadian kid. I just think that's so cool, right? That, uh, that he's pursuing that. So yeah, it's, it's a different time. It's a different time. And the ecosystem is aware that you know, everybody's the same if they're striving. Obviously, like you spoke about at the start of the podcast, you can only connect the dots looking back in hindsight. It's impossible to put a pin in the future, really. But if we were to look at like of the book and the, on the life and the times of Yanni Salicidis, if you were to look into that next chapter of exploring abroad, if it happens, what do you think it would look and feel like in five years time? I don't know. I don't know, man. But like, look, the coolest things are always beyond the mm. wildest imaginations, right? Like if you're talking blank slate, anything can happen. Like I can only imagine what would happen if we found the right project where there was some leadership that carved space and said, look, bring your four or five best people and go and write your story, man. Like I actually don't care where it is, but if you give me the space and some resources and let me bring some people and there's and there's two people I want to pay it forward to I'm not going to share their names but if I had the opportunity 
they would be the main actors in this story for everything they've given to our country. Mm. And these are the guys when you hear and feel me speaking and learnings, like these guys are behind me and have invested so much in me. One of them's not even in the game anymore. So whatever that chapter would look like would involve those two and making them the heroes and celebrating them and the and the light that they need to be celebrated in. And and there'd be guaranteed success. So if you're talking blank slate, it's like, yeah, give me five years with some of my my A star people and let's see what can happen next. And I mean, I suppose overarchingly, looking at your own development, do you believe there's a lot more lessons to be learned? Is there a lot more to be explored? I think I'm going into my 13th year, 14th year of coaching and leadership, you know, six or seven years as a director. There's those days where you're feeling so high and things are clicking and then there's those humbling days. And honestly, I I honestly feel like I'm just beginning. Like, I, I really feel like I'm in my slowdown phase these last three years or so. And what I mean by that, I've shared it with you before. I'll share it with the audience. Like, I deliberately carved out a five-year space in my journey where things were going to slow down. I was going to try to grow more staff member. I was going to try to upskill more staff member. I was going to try to share my learnings, the part where I really felt responsible, the ecosystem in our country. Uh, so I'm, I'm in like year three and a half, four of that where it's like, slow down, slow down and see things, step back and see things. It's not a case of trying to be right, but trying to be less wrong. Mm. Um, so that's where I'm at in my journey. And I think this next little while, I, I get a feeling that things are going to accelerate. And when things accelerate, there's a lot more humbling and, and learning to come as well. So mm. that's nonlinear. And it, it's, it changes at different intersections, whether it's coaching or leadership, leading up, leading down. You know, you, you need those moments. I'm huge on Ray Dalio's uh, learning cycle. If you've ever seen it, it starts like it's this, it's this line that turns into a loop that accelerates. And at the base of the line, there's a goal. And then the loop starts to curve down. It's like the, the goal starts hitting a learning or a mistake. And then you're in that, the belly of the beast. And then you propel out. And, and the belly is where the learning and the change has to happen, right? If you really think of it, it's a microcosm of the hero's journey, which I know you're huge on. You've put me on to, to that path too. So yeah, I'm big on the learning curve and, and I, I'm, I have the awareness and I choose to take the perspective that whenever I am in, in the belly of you know, the learning, you can think of that arc too. Like You can try to run up the arc to continue upwards, but sometimes you're going to get pulled downwards. Yeah. There's a gravity and that gravity is you've not really faced the lesson you're supposed to face. No. You've not really listened to the universe. It's going to slap you one more time. So go back up and try it again, and go back up and try it again. And then you find that momentum and you accelerate and you pass that learning. And then you've gone on to a next goal or a micro goal and the universe will hit you again or it'll humble you again with another learning. And then it's like, well, what's this one? Am I looking in the right place? Am I asking questions of others or myself, right? And how do I create that momentum to get out again? And it's, it's failing forward. Like I choose yeah. to see that perspective of failing forward because if you don't, you're done, man. You're done because you're always gonna get humbled and if you choose the victim mentality, you're going to stay in that pit and, and no one's coming to save you. It's not always common, though, that people get out of that pit. Some people stay ravaged and locked inside the belly of the beast. You know, what we spoke about earlier on, like the nadir of the Skrasofi game in the context of their season. That can make, it could break certainly an awful lot of people. There's, in fact, some people, I believe, you know, stagnated and they never grew after that game. And the, 
would have been left behind too. So it's interesting. I mean, like what tools would you have for people that get to the belly of the beast and don't know how to get out? You know what? There, there's two. The first one we spoke about was the curiosity piece. Yeah. What did I do wrong? How, do, how can I do better next time? Who can I learn from? What was my gap? And the other piece is the self-care. And I think we need to speak a bit about that too. It's like, it's showing the compassion for yourself. It's like, whoa, you, you hit this hurdle or you're in the, the belly of the beast or you're in the abyss of the hero's journey. It's like, whoa, like that's a privilege to be there. It's a privilege to be in that dark space, right? It means you, you cross the threshold. It means you, you embarked on something new. Like even this whole space here was, it's fairly new for me. It's very uncomfortable, mm. but it's like, you know, there's something on the other side of it. So compassion. It's not about maybe accelerating. It's not about the next learning. It's about that's okay. Let that be a part of you. Accept that. Surrender to that. And then change your paradigm. And your paradigm is just how you view the world, right? You change your paradigm on things. That's great. And well, how do you do that? It's empathizing with people, empathizing with people around you, empathizing with yourself, right? And then you shift reality in that way. You choose, you choose. So I don't see abysses anymore. I always see opportunities. Now, don't get it twisted. There's moments where I'll feel really shitty, but that's the time where you got to breathe. You step back and you're like, whoa, okay, there's, there's a pearl in here. Mm. And then it's like, well, what's the pearl all about? Is that for you? Why, why did you come upon this pearl? What is a pearl? What does it mean to you? Right? What does that lesson mean to you? Are you passing it on? Are you banking it for the future you? Is it something that the younger you always wanted to get to? And now that you got it, how are you going to use it? So... Yeah, you, you just got to choose your perspective. It's interesting because I loved how it ties into the work we did with the Roots earlier on this year. And as you spoke about at the start with the guys that joined, up to 75% of their ancestors had escaped or fledged war-torn countries. So, like it's there. <laughs> you know, fight, flight, or freeze. You know, and it's made a living or a breeding thing. I certainly believe that was just one unbelievable way of tapping into kind of manifesting that power and bringing it into the current day for those guys. Because I definitely think there were stages throughout the season, I know myself included, where I was tapping into it, but so many others were too. It's just such a deep, meaningful exercise. Yeah, and, and you remember you took us to the tree. We went twice to the famous meeting yeah. tree. Yeah, uh, And you can probably talk a bit more about the history and of that tree. But I remember going there and like, you just get hit with like this energy. And I, and I know some of the guys felt that some of them probably not. There's something about being open, but I felt an energy when we went there, I felt that space was safe. I felt that space had energy. Like there was something there. So all roots really do have healing power. If you choose to create the meaning of it. Mm. Right. So that's up to you. Yeah, I mean, for context, the meeting tree is a historical landmark here in London. Um, rose to prominence through, well, the mid to late 1800s when tens of thousands of people would have escaped the plantations down south in America and would have fledged north and, you know, the blind hoper of just for an opportunity beyond their wildest imagination. And they took the path of the Underground Railroad. And one of the last stops was this lovely meeting tree. Westminster Ponds and throughout decades upon end in the 1800s it housed tens of thousands of families that sought refuge underneath the tree and yeah look 
we were there once with the guys with the League One men, and then the second time we brought back all the captains from the leadership council that we have here in the club. And it was just such a, a poignant moment in the season, both both instances. One that was the first time we went was knee deep, right in the heart of the season. The second was the day before our very last home game at Tricare. And I thought it just created such an informal kind of ground for people to convene and to explore through conversation. And, it, 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 you know, it was one of those times it just felt so right. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that was kudos to you to create that space. I remember we had... Well, it's club-wide. Yeah, sure. we had the, the youngest captains interacting with captains on the, the men and women's first team. And I remember sitting back watching and be like, I didn't expect this to happen. I didn't mm. expect this level of conversation to emerge. But it was so cool. It was so cool. And yeah, like the, the roots piece is critical because you got to remember that someone before you was striving. And you got to remember whether times were tougher or not, they kept going, right? And it's important that you don't associate too much meaning to it either. And what I mean by that is like, you don't want to get stuck in just striving mode, right? And you say this a lot, you've turned me on to that piece was like, you don't want to just live in survival mode, no. like just going and trying to hustle and convincing yourself you got to get through the sweat and the grind. Life doesn't always have to be that way. And I struggled with that a lot. I mean, I shared a bit about my upbringing, you know, at 13, we were living out of my brother's van and we moved 29 times, constantly getting evicted, constantly not having enough for rent and shifting around. So I was always in that survival mode. And that's what kind of got me out of it was the, was the work piece. But you're in a place now where it's like, you know what, it doesn't have to be survival mode, change your paradigm, you know, be open to certain things. Mm. I can't articulate that with words, but it's something that I'm experiencing a lot more now is like, I don't have to strive through things. You just gotta let things happen. You gotta accept certain tensions, you got to see them for what they are, right? And then after that, different opportunities emerge. And would you use necessarily feelings or is it events to tap more into that? Into which part? Into understanding the signal to kind of strive. This is something I really should be investing my energy and kind of worth into. Yeah, that's a tough one. That, that comes from here. Yeah. That, that comes from that feeling here, right? And there's also the passion too, where it's like you want to move towards something. But there's certain times too where you, you do the piece, right? Like, you know, I'm 33 and I'm looking and I'm like, oh, well, this coach is at this stage in their career and this coach is in the Premier League and, you know, this Will Still guy is out in Belgium doing cool things, right? But I listened to his podcast the other day on the High Performance Podcast and the guy was speaking about outcomes and outcomes and outcomes. And I'm like, well, I think I wanted to get to what this guy has, but based on what he's speaking, he's in a different space. He's in a different space and a different learning and it's not right or wrong, but it's like, I know what I want now. I have clarity more on what I want and what I want is to be around similar people that want to help others. I want to be around similar people that want to help kids in a long-term project. I want to be around people that are joyful in the hardest moments because I struggle in those moments too. I'm a cheerleader, but I also struggle in those moments. So I need people around me that are, are positive and uplifting, right? Again, it, I, context is 10 of my best friends growing up, you know, two committed suicide and six were in and out of jail, right? Like there's only a few of us that kind of moved on and, and found a career and found a way out. So you, you got to be very conscious of the experience you want to have and all experience is self-created, mm. right? So I want to be around people who are aware of that. I want to be around people who are conscious of that because then we can start to do things that are beyond our desires. We can start to tap into, you know, the real fulfillment of life. It's something we speak about a lot of the time. I mean, about being a truth teller. Now, 
there's another piece to that too about showing players and coaches the mirror. Yeah. So what does that mean? I'm huge on that. I don't know too much about being a truth teller. I don't know how many truths I actually know or have, but I'm big on the truth mirror. And, and the truth mirror is all about raising self and situational awareness, mm. right? It's about seeing the reflection of, of your actions and, and the impacts they had, whether it's showing someone a text that they sent very rashly or showing somebody their attitude mm. uh, on a clip. It could be good or bad. And I, I like to use the mirror analogy with the players. Like if you think of 11 players on the pitch, and, and if the coach were to put a laser pointer at one of those mirrors, if all the mirrors were angled in the right way, in the right direction, in the right moment, that laser pointer should hit goal, right? And if one of those mirrors are out of place, we don't hit the target. So all it takes is one player, right? So we're all responsible for each other. We're responsible for our own position, our own direction. We're responsible for acting in the right moment, right? And as a coach, sometimes, you know, your job is simply holding that mirror up to a player, Right, that could be through a question, a conversation, could be through body language, mm. right? Could be through one word, right? So I love the mirror analogy, but there's many different ways you can spin it. Yeah, I think zooming back out again, a few questions. I mean, hearing you speak about you know how often best results are beyond our comprehension, beyond our imagination, it's very indicative of how we first became acquainted. Do you remember how? I think it was uh, over Twitter. Yeah. We started a Twitter yeah, chat yeah. on my old Twitter account that got taken down during COVID. It's back now. But uh, yeah, it was through Twitter. COVID, June 2020. Do you remember the book recommendation you gave me? Yes, The Age of the Unthinkable. That's right. Wow. Like, <laughs> fast forward three and a half years doing podcasts face to face after working nearly a year together. It's just amazing. But like, that book had absolutely everything. And I think it's a microcosm of your own coaching journey today, your own personal journey today, and the experiences which you've gained throughout that time too, in terms of everything from speaking about complex adaptive systems to even the sand pile effect. And we spoke about the sand pile effect there probably a month ago now, but the way you articulated it was basically if you can add one more person, one more player into a system, the degree of complexity which that now creates, oh, it's often hard for people to harness and to kind of manage. Yeah, and, and that's that's the leadership and the awareness piece. Anytime you add one more human into the mix, things become so dynamically complex. Emotions, attitude, intentions, desires, wants, uh, the conflict. So it, it's critical. That book is fascinating. It, it goes through A to Z on complexity theory and it's case study after case study. If you get the chance, uh, anybody out there listening, uh, you got to read it. Age of the Unthinkable. It's absolutely fascinating. And I mean, <laughs> it seems now we're just shouting out different books and articles, but because uh, my next point was the Wenger article that came out a few days ago on the future of football. Arsene Wenger, global head of football at FIFA. And it's Fascinating to see the transformation that organization's been undergoing the past few years. But I mean, the article he did with Miguel Delaney of the Independent was quite quite an indictment of some of the coaching practices substantiated throughout the world. And it was quite tough, and I, I would say fair, on the accessibility piece afforded to players, uh, not only sports, but also the education piece. But there's one quote I wanted to kind of pass your way. Uh, 
Wenger said in it, I can understand that as long as I was at Arsenal, I didn't care too much about the wider global game because I had to win the next game. Once you have a global vision of world football, you realise something is not right. And where I'm throwing that at you is that I would say you're quite a football socialist. You're quite invested in other people's education. You're quite invested in the game as a whole and kind of not educating people within the club, but through your own platforms and through your own respected voice, people all over the world. And you've inspired a lot of people. So like for me, working closely first time with you, you haven't relented despite having these first team coaching duties at the club, despite having your role as TD. So like in this age of like now, next game, next, 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 I mean, why on earth do you care so much about how the game is played? Because there's some kid, boy or girl, somewhere who's going to watch some game and that's going to give them some reason. Some reason to take the next step. Some reason to go give five more minutes of work with the ball, which actually isn't about work with the ball, but it's the discipline to attack something, which may then turn into the discipline to study. Right, so it's about what the spectacle can be and give to to young people. I know, you know, when my mom passed away, I spent a lot of time with the ball. I spent a lot of time with just me and one ball, mm. and that was therapeutic in so many ways that I didn't understand at the time. And then I spent a lot of time watching, you know, local matches, and I had role models on local teams in my hometown, and that was so cool. And that gave me a reason to do something else. So it just gave me a reason to take one more step. Right. And I think the cool thing about a, a match is, you know, the next game you're going to watch in the third minute, you don't have a clue where the ball is going to be. That's fascinating in and of itself. And I think where Wenger's getting at here is he was caught in the hamster wheel of it all. Of course, it's fun. It's passionate. He's learning, but he stepped off the hamster wheel and he's, he's, he's having a broader spectrum of what's happening. And with all the experiences he has, he's saying something's wrong and he's right. Like, why can't players seamlessly move between clubs in this day and age? How do we not have systems and things in place where, like, players can experience football around the globe seamlessly? How, how are we getting into situations where players are so blocked by contracts? What does the future of youth development need to look and feel like? Like, why don't we have street football hubs that are AI run, where there is nobody who leads it, but it's like a global club, and they're tracking certain data? And why can't it be character-based? where you've, you, you're on the app and you've shown you've done some community will or goodwill or, and then you're in, right? Like, why, why can't we have certain things like this? And why can't it be integrated everywhere? And why can't the role of coaches change? Um, so I think, I think that guy, he can probably speak to it better than me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's so much more we can be doing. But when you get fixated in a system and you're not adapting, you, you crystallize. And when you crystallize, you, you get stuck. And I think... We're starting to realize these different tensions all over the world in the football ecosystem. And truth is, there some of them are going to crumble and break. Some of them are antiquated, uh, and some new ones are going to emerge. If you look at what Precision's doing in Dubai right now, they uh, full AI facility. They got all the tech. What a facility! Go and check them out. Precision Football in Dubai. Through one of your connections, we've signed uh, a player there who I believe he's signing the contract today. Uh, am I right in saying that? Is this what? 
Yeah, so, <laughs> so I believe he's signing today. And then we have another boy who's going out to Precision. He's actually in the air right now, flying out to Dubai. KB as well. And uh, hopefully he's signing too. But check out their facility, all tech-based and, and what they're doing in the third tier of Qatar. I just think it's so cool. And I think we're going to see a lot more of these, these start to emerge in the next little while. Third tier of the UAE. We'll forgive you. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yes. Sorry. Sorry. You've been But, uh, educating me on that piece. Yes. Yeah. 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 You're speaking of systems dying there and structures falling. Obviously, like we're in the rubble of it now, really, where you can kind of see firsthand. Yes. Like systems dying, people leaving systems, you know, structures kind of going down to ground zero and rebuilding from the very start. I mean, do you see yourself joining that? I think so. Soon? Yeah, I think so. And I think it takes a certain type of person who kind of understands the greater ecosystem of things with someone who understands like how systems flow and you can see the cracks everywhere. Like again, you think of a, a guy like Rene Merch, like how is that guy not in a first team somewhere uh, and being backed with hundreds of millions of dollars? Yeah. How is that guy not at the frontier of football? He's one of the most innovative coaches out there. The guy's a genius. And on top of it all, character through the roof and he's a great heart he's another guy who shares with people so openly how are we not putting that guy on a pedestal right so those are symptoms of a broken system right so i think there's a lot of people out there too who can contribute to something bigger and i think that's something that we're going to see a lot more of i don't know how things are going to transition this next little bit but i think change is imminent and i think the ones who are going to be part of the next frontier are going to be the ones who understand how that works Yeah, the, the next frontier for me, it's like, it's very tough to kind of decipher between, you know, what's fallen apart, what's being rebuilt and what's fallen apart and what is completely new. And what I'm most intrigued to be around for, hopefully, is it's not necessarily the fruits of the labor from this generation going off playing. It's can we keep a percentage of this generation in the game? coaching or even on the commercial side because it's never been as important to marry what's happening on the pitch with what's happening off it see certain clubs and different ecosystems they're happy to be the small fish in a big pond they're happy to understand where they are in the world ecosystem of things and to not be embedded in reality you're just in a state of delusion I'd have to say so there's never been a more important time of people kind of signpost themselves with certain projects I think as we spoke about so eloquently here at times too, it's like that's important for retention. You need bricks and mortar and you need people who understand how these places operate. Mm -hmm. Speaking to several people who've been on the podcast that we're at United under Sir Alex Ferguson, like absolutely just incredible. You can feel the warmth from the other end of the microphone, the cliff, 111 aside field at a training ground, antiquated for the treble winners in 1999 and you see the lineage of people that have passed through there through those walls and they still like they wear the badge with pride everywhere they go like you associate these people that come through with the bricks and mortar of the club you associate them with the crest you know they're role models not only at the club but in society as a whole and I think football can be better with that regard and for me it's the retention piece I think capacity can be a problem too but it's like If you put resources, if you put sometimes even blind faith and ambition behind a project with good people that are going to be there for two, three years and invest in them 
and love them unconditionally. Hopefully even, longer too. Well, hopefully longer Two, too. Two, three years right. isn't enough, but yeah. Yeah, longer than that. But if you can invest and love them unconditionally, support them unconditionally, there is no limit as to what you can achieve. And it's like, that's how a dream is born. It permeates. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. At it, once it has to be. You're spot on. You know? You're spot on. Like if you think of even most successful people or athletes or there's always been one person that gave that relentless unconditional support so you take that principle into into the world of football it's like well what's the gap is like that unconditional support okay everyone talks about Guardiola and what he's doing of course Mm. fantastic but that guy has unconditional support from the top right so how are we losing people who you know should be getting that what do you see now about talent performance pathways any certain patterns that, you know, it's boiling right under the surface now that you believe they'll actually become quite commonplace over the next decade or so? I think there's a critical window that we're missing in development. And I think it's, there's something around that 14 to 16 uh, years of age where players need experience abroad. Like how cool would it be that like in your academy, there's an agreed upon timeline, like we don't have a U15 team. Why? Well, you're in the academy, but by U15, all 23 players disperse and migrate for a six-month piece and partner clubs around the world. So they go and live in different languages. They go and live in different cultures. They go and live under different coaches. And then they come back and then they continue their pathway. Like that is an accelerator. So what I'm getting at is like, how do we add these little micro performance accelerators or experience accelerators into the pathway? Right, like that linear pathway is done. That's part of the antiquated way. You can keep chasing that like everybody else, but how do you be unique within that? So I think those are like little things that directors and owners need to be thinking. How do you create these safe migration hubs? And I think with MCOs starting to emerge more and more, huge opportunity to do that within your own system, within your own language. I think we're going to start seeing micro MCOs, which is like ownership groups in like third or fourth tiers that have clubs across the globe, which is, I think, a hugely untapped market, right? And the integration that can happen within those systems too. Yeah, I, I think it's been able to cross-pollinate resources and perspectives for the better because, yeah, it just strikes me as like, there's certain people I'd love to see work together in the global game. I'm not going to name names now. I think you know who I'm speaking about. Certain people within our our friend group, our pioneer group, so to speak, that I'd love to see work together. And I think it would be of such immense benefit and resource for the global game, knowing where these guys' intentions are at. So it's a case of how do you get all these people in the one room with the one vision, just and go, and go, and go, and go. Like for me, that's the million dollar question to solve. Yeah, I don't know the answer. I think there's something about just starting. There's something about someone listening to this here by chance or by passed on from someone else who says, you know, who are these guys? And who are those other people you're speaking about? Let's get into a conversation. Uh, But I think you just got to start too. You just got to start. And I think it's not something that just happens, right? It's these connecting the dots backwards, right? It's it's just that. It's like, holy crap, we're all in a certain place of our lives and careers where it's like, let's try this. And I'm not just speaking about us. I'm speaking about, there may be people listening to this that are like, you know what? I'm getting some ideas of that. Or you know what? I've always felt that. But because of the current system, I thought, no, it's impossible. Go, get your people together and go. But no, it's not going to take two or three years. It's going to take a lot longer. Mm. And 
do you think we're setting up people in football now to play that long-term game? I've never been in a project where I can actually showcase what I can do in 10 years. Mm. Like things happen in 10, 15 year stratums. I've never had that privilege. So the first real coaching gig I had was at a local club in my hometown. And I worked there for four years. And after four years, we were only starting to get momentum. Like we were just starting to take off. Um, and the rug was pulled from underneath us. Like um, there was some conflicts with some of the board members who wanted some of their children on certain teams and mm-hmm. I wouldn't budge. And that cost me my job. Um, then you roll on four years in Saskatchewan. You're the director of one of the smaller, but one of seven nationally aligned regional centers. Four years building a high performance program in Saskatchewan. We started to pick up some scary momentum. I remember right before COVID, we took our Saskatchewan group off to Alberta, which is a very strong center, and we beat the Alberta center. That's unheard of. Like, that's never happened before. One week later, COVID hits, right? Roll on seven more months. There's a change in um, how they're structuring things. That's another project where I didn't get to capture the momentum I wanted, right? And then I was going to take a year off football. I met a guy on an A license, Tommy Wielden. He invited me into uh, his environment in the CPL. I spent a year there as an insight analyst and an IDP coach. And then uh, after helping him that, that season, I moved on to a project here. Again, we're, we're at uh, year three almost, but we've hit the milestones we wanted. And there's, you know, there's some limitations here. There's mm. some limitations in terms of resources. So that's where we have to be better. We get to be creative. We get to be innovative in that way. That's fantastic. But there's limitations on what we can do for our players, right? So we have to break those barriers. So I've not, I've not had the chance to roll something out for 10 years. So it's very difficult for me to speak about that. It's very difficult for me to say, this is what it looks like over 10 years. I only know that momentum only starts to pick up at four or five years. And I also know that there's a pattern and theme that when you get to that level of tension, you need a certain type of ownership with an awareness to drive people on to urge people to want to keep going 1%, to create safe spaces where people feel comfortable to want to innovate, you know, and put their courage on the line and put their name on the line and put their emotion on the line, right? So that's my limitation on what I can speak about there. Yeah. No, it's, it's pretty unique and interesting because, I mean, as of I'm thinking of, you know, thumbnails for the podcast, you know, the one slogan I have coming through is adapt or else. So I have every confidence that given what's proceeded to date, that you'll be able to achieve whatever you set your heart's desire on or what meets you flat in the face over the coming year, over the coming five to 10 years. Because I think that's the beauty of these things too. You don't really do it for the outcome. You don't do it for the end result. Like, yeah, don't get don't get a twist. You get the dopamine hits now and again. There's nothing better than preparing all week for a game of football and then winning on a Saturday. Nothing beats that. Nothing. But at the same time, being able to work alongside good people under the prerogative that this is for the wider scope, that this is for the wider vision, that you may not be in the building to see the results of this work in the future. That's for me where true change and that's a true energy force. And I think that's what everyone in this game is after, to feel that sense of belonging, you know? Yeah, and I think that's that what gives that's what gives us the feeling here too. We're very clear with the ownership. One of the reasons why I came to London and people may think, why the heck would you go to London, Ontario, was the ownership agreed that I was able to bring, or they, they granted me the ability to bring four or five people with me, which was what I really wanted. Four or five 
right people, good characters, people who are curious, people who were never really given a chance or kind of looked over to bring those people with me. And then in three years, we'd hand it on. So there was trust and clarity in this whole project. There was trust and clarity in what we were doing. And it was a lot of fun. Mm. It was a lot of fun. Still is an awful lot of fun too. But I mean, undoubtedly, there'll be a lot of people listening to this podcast and you could have anything from coaches, directors, executives listening. But for, I suppose, those people that their minds are racing, the reflection and action, listening back to this podcast, you know, youthful coaches that would wish to thread a similar pathway to yourself in a game. I suppose, what would be the one bit of key advice you'd have for them on their journey? Start with the end in mind. Uh, and when I say end in mind, start with emotions and feelings. So what does it look like at the end? When you have wrinkles on your fingers and you're a bit gray and it's tougher to walk, start with the end in mind and then work backwards from there. And what experiences are you going to help others create? And how are those experiences going to be uh, windows of opportunity for change? Right, And work backwards from there because ultimately it's your path you choose. You have the responsibility to choose. And there's no right or wrong path. Whether you stay in Canada, whether you go abroad, whether you're in the Premier League, Right, so it's it's having that awareness, and we did an exercise with the with the first team at the beginning of the season. They each had a piece of paper, and we asked the same question. I said, you know, how do you want the season to end? And a couple of the guys were a bit perplexed, and I said, no, you need to write it in full to me. And that was their ticket to get on the away trip. I don't know if you remember. Yeah. If they didn't bring their envelope, they weren't getting on the bus. So they had to write in full depth what the last day of the season looked and felt like for them. And they had to write it with as much emotionalization as possible. And then what that becomes is a reference. So when you talk about the Scroscopy game and we, we take a 4 nothing beating and there's embarrassment around that, you know, you better believe that that's another anchor that those guys are starting to think like, whoa, that's not what, this is not how the story's supposed to go. Mm. That's not what I want. That's not what I've chosen, right? So you have to reflect and, and you got to go back to that. And I think that that was a huge piece for us for the guys to look forward to because there were some grueling days where there was those winter months at BMO or those three hour sessions that we were running and just didn't stop. Right. But when you know what the end looks and feels like you have a reference, right. And then it makes it easier when you're in the abyss to look for certain tools and, and find a way out. That's some absolutely outstanding advice to close the show. Uh, Yanni, I have to say I'm extremely grateful for you accepting the invite to come on today. I know you don't do these very often. And yeah, look, I think what you've just shared with the audience of this podcast and hopefully a few more listening as well is uh, absolutely valuable gold for them. And there'll be a lot of people that will take different messages away from this, but I have to admire your sincerity coming on, giving us the whole backstory, football-wise, personal-wise, and I think it makes you into the guy today inspirational leader what you've done for your staff what you've done for your team what you've done for your club so I'd like to pass, pass on that message too Thank you for creating the space <laughs>